Lord, we just praise you. We praise how you go before us, how you know our comings and our goings, and you use all the things and the circumstances of our life to benefit us, Lord, or at least to grow us. So we pray that you'd be with us today as you've been with us for so many weeks and months and years. Lord, we pray that uh, these words would be from you and not of me. And Lord, I just pray that it would be a, a joyous time together this morning in your word. We just praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a while since I've been with you guys or since I've taught you guys. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people will be like, oh, do you get nervous if you teach? And actually t- speaking like this is not a big deal. The thing I get nervous about is will I keep it, you know, under two hours or uh, closer to the 30-minute mark? So pray for me in that. But uh, I tried to limit myself so less notes, less talking. But uh, yeah, so we said Matthew chapter 24, if you guys are getting there. In recap, right, you guys know that we've been in James. That should be hopefully not a surprise. Uh, And James, as we've said, is a book about practical faith. Um, So we've had all these lessons about loving, about being patient, about how we should deal with our money, how we should deal with others with regards to money and business. We've had all this practical stuff. And now with me stepping in this week, we have a chance to kind of step away for a week and actually go to James's brother, which I doubt Jesus was likely very seldomly referred to as James's brother. I'm pretty sure James was used to being Jesus's brother. But uh, since we've been in James, we're going to go and look at the words of Jesus's brother, or James's brother, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24. Um, and I think this is going to be a pretty uh, a valuable message, right? Because Jesus in this passage is going to give some warnings to Christians that I think are also applicable well, not all, also, but that are applicable to us today. And it's going to tie to where we go next week, right? Because I don't know how Brett will teach James 5, but a lot of what James 5 talks about is patience and suffering. So turn with me, the book of Matthew. Um, and before we jump in, let's orient ourselves because we haven't been in Matthew. So, right, if we went back, we're going to be in chapter 24. If you went to chapter 21, which I don't need you guys to go back, but I'll orient you. That's where Jesus had what they called the triumphal entry, right? So Jesus is now bringing the earthly ministry that he had. He's, he's kind of going into that last phase. He's coming into Jerusalem. That's what they call the triumphal entry where he entered on a donkey. That starts off the, the series of events that ends up leading to his crucifixion and death. And this is what we would call Palm Sunday, which is actually coming up not too long, right? So that's chapter 21. And then as he enters Jerusalem, he makes his way to the temple, and that's the first thing that he does is he goes in and he's, that's where he's turning over the, the money changers, the people who are defiling the temple. They're turning it to a place of business and they're doing shady things and, and that just grieves the Lord. And so he goes and he, sorts of, he shoves over the tables and he, he um, runs all that out. Um, and then we see him come back a bit later and he was in the temple and the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and Sadducees, right, they had been just been just grieved by what Jesus was doing because it was taking away from their notoriety. It was taking away from their power and they're questioning him and they're, at, they're trying to throw him all these gotchas and like, oh, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And, uh, and so Jesus, there's a long, basically, uh, where he's just calling him out. And so that rebuke is strong. Um, it's something that's interesting to read. And, and after that, he leaves the temple. And that's actually interesting the last time that Jesus will be in the temple uh, but not for today. But he walks out, and as he's walking out, his disciples are like, oh, man, they're, they're marveling at the temple um, because it was this magnificent building. Uh, and history tells us that they were likely, well, it tells us the temple was still under construction in this time period, so they were likely marveling at what was built, um, what was to come, right, in these magnificent structures. Um, and we know that it's many years later, not until AD 64, that the temple actually gets completed, 
right? But as they're saying this, Jesus' response is, it's a prophecy about the destruction of the temple. So this thing that's not even built that they're marveling at, he gives a prophecy of the destruction, um, which is something that we actually see come true only six years after it was completed. So all the years to be rebuilt, six, 80, 64, it's completed. Just six years later in AD 70, the Romans come through and destroy it and destroy it so thoroughly that they're not even sure exactly where parts of the temple actually were. So this just massive destruction, right? And that takes us to where we are today because that's what I want to look at is that, that Jesus gave this, 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 uh, this prophecy or he said this thing to the disciples and then they leave out and they go up into the mountains and then the disciples come up because they were like, man, we don't know exactly what you meant there. And they ask him. And so Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 3, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So this, of course, you might read this, you're like, oh man, we're about to get deep into some end times prophecy or whatever, but no. Actually, I want to go into one little section here. Um, when you go back, right, and they talk about we're going to be delivered to tribulation, put to death, and the specific thing that stuck out to me and that I want to just spend some time this morning thinking about is this statement, right, that says, and because lawlessness will be increased... The love of many will grow cold. And I think this is a word that is important for us to hear today as the church. So first, let's do our uh, requisite Greek word, right, to go back. And love, what is love here? You guys may or may not know. Love in the Bible in Greek is translated with three different words. And there's one that's like a romantic love. And there's, there's, a, there's a couple different ways. But the one that we have here is agape love. It's a brotherly love of affection, a goodwill, or a benevolence, right? This is the love that we see talked about by Jesus so many times as he's going through. And I also want to be clear who these many are, right? Because they say because of lawlessness, the love of many. And these aren't just some random many. These aren't actually this prophecy and this, what Jesus is talking about is, oh, the earth, all these unsaved people, their love is going to go away or they are affected. They're actually talking about Christians, if you look at some of the commentaries, right, they say the many, it could be also the most or the generality, or the generality of professed disciples, right? That's, who is that? That's whole passage from verse 9, what we read, until what we talk about this growing cold in the end, is talking about us, about the church, right? This is us. And so we should be concerned, right, because Jesus says as we come to these last days and these times, the love of many will grow cold. 
And if Jesus is warning us as his body, his, his people here on earth, that love is going to grow cold, then we, we should take notice because that should be a concerning thing, right? I think all of us today would be like, no, we don't want to be cold-hearted Christians as we titled this message. That sounds, that sounds like something that doesn't make sense. How could you be cold-hearted and be a Christian? Yet we find Jesus here warning us about this possibility. So we have, uh, I have three points. And honestly, you know, just this passage alone, you could probably spend years. Literally, you might say, oh, that's crazy. But trust me, I can talk for years. And I think most pastors could talk for years about these passages and the end times and all the things that they lead to. But I just want to go and, and sort of a devotional message and think about three aspects of love and how we're called as Christians to love. Right? So first, I want to remind us that we are called to love on the basis of grace. And what's grace? We say unmerited favor, right? If you don't have those things, if you haven't developed those, I'll try to do it. But grace is unmerited favor. We are called to love on the basis of grace, not earthly circumstances, right? So we see in this passage, it says the earthly circumstances in these last days are not going to be comfortable. What does it talk about, right? We see wars, famines, earthquakes, right? And then for Christians specifically, it says there's going to be tribulation and death. We're going to be hated for his name. There's going to be false prophets. That sounds, that sounds terrible. That sounds like a time when anybody would be justified to be a bit cold, right? But let's, you might even think like, how could we ever get to that? Maybe you won't, right? Because let's bring it to today. And I would argue that in the, at least in the United States, we have an unprecedented time of division. In our adult lives, you know, people may want to go through history and, and it's not really a point of being argumentative, right? But we could say that in our lifetimes, I think we have an unprecedented time of division. Um, bitterness and divisiveness that comes from the news, that comes from social media and the way that we interact with each other are running rampant. Whether that's along a political lines, whether in the signs of today, whether it's about masks or no masks or vaccines or is COVID this or is COVID that, right? And the unprecedented literal social separation that we've experienced, right? Being pulled apart, being isolated in some cases literally in our homes and pulled apart, right? We see little bits of what this is like. And if you've been in Chula Vista, you've even felt a couple of the little earthquakes. No. I'm not here today to tell you that we are in the end times because Jesus tells us we don't know. No one will know. I'm telling you more that because we don't know, we should be prepared and we should think, right? And if we are called, if we were called to love based on our earthly circumstances, then honestly, guys, it'd be pretty easy. We would never love because there's nearly never been a time in history that earthly circumstances would be so wonderful that it would draw out of us a sense of love. And typically, our fleshly love, right, the way that we love is frequently dependent on the reciprocity, on what we expect to get back from that other person, what we expect to receive. That might sound terrible, but that, that's, that's how we guard ourselves, right? It's hard to love somebody that you don't think is going to love you back because that leaves you exposed, right? But that is not viewing the world through the eyes of God. That's what God calls us to be different. Let's look at Romans 5.8. I think it'll be up here, right? What did God say? He said, or what did Paul say but on behalf of the Lord? He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So what is this love? This is the same love 
the agape that we just talked about that we see in our passage today, right? God loved us, this brotherly, this, this selfless love. And it was what? Was it, you know, God loved us because he's like, oh man, those guys are great. They're living their life good. Those are wonderful people. I love them and let me go do something for them. No, he loved us independent of our circumstances, right? He didn't wait for us to figure out how to get ourselves right. He didn't look at us across this divide of righteousness because we know that God is perfectly righteous and right and good and, and free from sin. And he didn't look at us across this divide that existed um, and, and judge us and be like, oof. Right? He saw that divide and he created a bridge of love that we could walk across through the sacrifice of his son because he desired that we would come to him. And it was interesting to me because I think this is similar to the vows that we take in marriage, right? We know, we have imprinted in our hearts and our souls this right way of thinking about love, right? What do we say typically, and I know people take different vows, but what are the, the stereotypical vows, right? For richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, right? Till death do us part, right? Do those, those are not circumstantial. In fact, we try to think of all the circumstances that might stop us from love, that we might break us. And we try to say intentionally as we come to that marriage, that, alt, that altar and say, in all these circumstances that I can think of that might tear us apart, we're vowing to not be torn apart, right? So one, we're called to love and it's, it's based on grace, right? So our earthly circumstances shouldn't play into it. If we go to, if, if we go to our next point then, right, we can see, actually, no, sorry, let me stay here for a second. <laughs> We're seeing this today, right? We're seeing this in our church today because you might say, well, okay, this is great. I, I, I think a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, we read the Bible and it feels um, not removed. It's applicable to us today, but we don't make it you know, we don't think, how would this look in our circumstances? Or we think of it as a, some future or possible thing. But I would offer to you guys that this is not just happening in our society, but it's been happening in the past few years especially. It's rampant within the church. We are not removed. We are not separated. If you think that we're not susceptible, let me tell you. Well, we had an article that we, the elder group, were looking at. I mean, we send each other things. We're always reading things. We're always doing things. And we got an article today, this week that we're, you know, these are our study things. This is sort of our fun chatter. But they was talking about this unprecedented fracturing of the American evangelical church, specifically around politics, sexual scandals, and issues of race, which I hope is not a surprise to you that this is going on. This has been something that has... Uh, been divisive, dividing the church and dividing teams or people and, and groups of people who have been historically strongly connected together. Um, one of the things it said there that kind of illustrated this and is, was impactful to me is it said, think of your 12 closest friends. These are people you vacation with, talk about your problems with, do life with in the most intimate and meaningful ways. Now imagine if six of those people suddenly took a political or public position you found utterly vile. You would suddenly realize that the people you thought you knew best and cared about most had actually been total strangers all along. You would feel disoriented, disturbed, unmoored. Your life would change. If we go back, and you guys may or may not, if you were following along with us over, I guess that would be last the spring of, of uh, 2021, we were live streaming, and one of the weeks we played a message from a pastor uh, named Thabiti Amyabwile. 
It was a unique name. You may remember it, if not for any other reason, because of that. Um, and he gave this great message. It was about contentment, contentment with Christ's body, which is the church. But that actual pastor, interestingly enough, was quoted in this article. And the article, the quote that he gave was, he said about these past few years, it's been at times agonizing and bewildering. My entire relationship landscape has been rearranged. I've lost 20-year friendships. I've had great distance inserted into relationships that were once close and I thought would be close for life. I've grieved. As this is our brothers and sisters in Christ, we as a church, not just this church body here, but we as the church proper across the United States and across the world are not exempt, even though we have the truth, right? And so I offer this to say... We're not called to love because of our circumstances, but we're seeing that this kinds of thing, that circumstances are creeping into the church and we should be aware and realize that this is something that we need to be, be thinking about. So let's go to our second point, right? What's our second point is we said we're not called to be loved based on circumstances. The second thing that the Lord put on my heart is we're called to love, not to be right. We're called to love. We're called to be right. And this is going to sound weird. And I want to say, first thing is, this isn't a call to reject the truth. There is this movement that says, oh, everything is okay. Any way that anybody interprets something is okay. That's not what we're saying. The Bible is truth. God's word is truth. We have truth. I am not doubting that in one bit. And I don't want you to doubt that. But let's go to John chapter 13. Starting in verse 34, I'll give you a chance to go there. But let's see what Jesus said to his disciples. And note that this is the last words, basically, that John records Jesus speaking to his disciples as he's about to leave the earth. Right? And he says in John chapter 13, starting in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, because you have the truth. No. What does he say? He says, if you have love for one another. By this you will know that people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The same love that Jesus is talking about here is this agape love, right? The same love. Again, we see it. Agape, agape, agape. This is this, is this, this brotherly love. And Jesus says they will know them by their love, not by their correctness. Which I find interesting, Right? Because we know that we have the truth. But what does the Bible even say in 1 Corinthians about loving without, or doing things and speaking without love and speaking truth? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. If you turn there with me. Right, it says, and you might have heard this. It's popular even in a song recently. I think King and Country, if you listen. They actually quote this verse at the end, right? The extended portion of it. But the part I'd say is, 13 verse 1, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We're blessed. We have Ryan, we have uh, Doug there up here. We don't get noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. We get rhythmic sounds. We get joyous sounds that add the fullness of our worship. But imagine if I sat over here and I started trying to... uh, play the cymbal or the gong, right? And I'm up here, we need more gong, boom, randomly out of tune. Would that sound good? Would that invite us into worship? No. You'd be distracted. You'd be like, man, get Kevin off there. What in the world is going on, right? 
Yet this is what the Bible tells us we sound like when we talk, even with the truth, even with the truth of the Bible, of the ultimate truth. When we come without love to those we bring it to, it sounds like that terrible gong and cymbal that I'm playing or metaphorically playing here, right? And so don't get me wrong too, right? We are made in the image of God. There's this theological concept uh, called imago Dei, that we have the image of God printed on us. And that means his sense of wrong, his sense of right, his sense of fairness and justice, that those are imprinted on us, even if we can't verbalize it and say it, that we don't know that we are made in his image, right? So this desire for right and truth and justice is God-given. It comes from us. Yet we see in the Bible that God has reserved, in almost all cases, judgment for himself. And I don't have a long study about why that is, right? But I, I think one of the reasons is because of pride. It feels good to be right. When we come and we see something and we're like, ah, I have the truth, and we burst it out, right? That, that fulfills us because it feels good to be right. But we're called, in a couple cases, we are called to correct, right? Whether it's a Christian brother or an admonishing sin, but we're called to be gentle, we're not called, right? That's the warning, not to be as a clanging symbol. Because you know, even when you call your kids, if you're a parent, you have the right answer, you catch them and the thing, and you're like, this is the right answer. They aren't like, oh, thank you. That truth feels so good. No. When people are caught in something that's difficult or wrong, and you, you, you catch them or you have truth, the truth isn't received. And some of that is on them. They're, they're convicted and understand that, but... Some of that is also on us because the truth will convict and the Lord will move in their hearts. And so we're called to love. We're called not to be right. Right? And we talked about this in James chapter 4. If you want to go talk about judgment, right? There was a few different things in James and you can go look at that and listen there. Because Brett talked a lot more and I'm not going to. We can go there in James chapter 4 and you can look at it. We must remember all through the Bible... Although it is the word of God, it's the source of ultimate truth. The last thing that Jesus told his disciples was that love would be the defining trait by which they and by us we could be identified. Third thing. So, we're called to love independent of circumstances. We're called to love, not to be right. And last, I'd say we are called to love even in the face of injustice, sin, and the desires of this earth. Right? So let's look at this passage again and see. What does it say? Because lawlessness increased. Right? In this one verse, that's what it starts. This doesn't say things got good. Right? It says lawlessness. There's something bad happening. Don't be fooled. Jesus wasn't just talking about good times or, or whatever. There was bad stuff happening. Right? And, and lawlessness here, you're like, well, lawlessness, what is it like? You know, we need more police. Is that what happens in the last days? Where, no, what they're talking about here is it also is translated iniquity, which that may not help you. Um, violation of the law, it's, it could be wickedness or transgressions of the law, of biblical law, of morality, right? Unrighteousness, bad things, right? So this isn't just that in the last days there'll be like a lot of theft and drive-by shootings. Those are horrible things. But these are going to be just, it's going to be sin. It's going to be pervasive. And remember again, we're talking about the church, right? This whole passage is coming back to Christians 
And so they're saying lawlessness is going to be a thing. It's going to be in society, but it's also going to creep in to the church. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? This isn't the only place in the Bible that this is talked about. If we turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, right? So Paul's writing to Timothy, his, his disciple that he was mentoring and, and growing. And he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I don't know about you guys, but I read that and I'm like, that is a group of people that I want to hang out with. That's a group that I want to love, right? Abusive, lovers of money, arrogant people. Yes, surround my circle with those people. That's what I want. We know from the Bible that sinfulness will abound in people, but yet we're still called to love. We are still called to love, right? This is going to be, we see this here. We said the injustice, sin, and desires of this earth are going to run rampant. We could go to a ton more passages in the Bible that will talk about the last days. And remember, you might say, okay, the last days, that's, that's the last days. That's not now. We don't know. We don't know when those times will come. And yet, we're called to love. Even when sin is abounding, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether it's mistreatment of us, and the sin and the things that are, the world is doing, right? This isn't the only passage that talks about the church in the last days. Actually, the book of Revelation has a whole section that goes church by church. And these are churches that are, their letters are written to in Corinth, in Corinth and Ephesus. I want to go to one, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. But I'll give you a chance to go to Revelation 2, right? And this is a letter... That's captured in Revelation. If you don't know, Revelation was captured, written by the, the Apostle John, or at least that's what it's historically accepted, as he was um, isolated and banished, basically imprisoned on an island after he'd been burned in, or boiled in oil and didn't die. I had all these horrific things that he had suffered. And the Lord spoke to him and gave him this, this vision of the end times. And one of the sections here in chapter 2 is to the church in Ephesus. And it says, in starting in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's look here. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Oh man, this is like, sounds great, right? What is going on here? Then we go to the next one. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Guys, what is the application of what we're seeing and reminding us about love, right? This warning, like we said, both in Matthew and what we see is here, is to Christians, to the church, 
to us, not to some unnamed mass. It's to you and it's to me and it's to our children and to our spouses and to our friends. It is to this group of people here. This is the message and the warning and the call for introspection. Right? Look, what do we see? The church of Ephesus that's captured here, they were doing good. They were patient. They were enduring. They didn't tolerate evil, right? They saw the truth. They would test things. They tested. They rejected false teachings. They knew how to take it back to the words that they had learned and reject those things. And they did it tirelessly. They didn't grow weary, right? That's the church that we want to be. That's what we strive. If you asked me as one of your elders, if you asked all of us and Brett, like we want to be that. We want to be patient, enduring. We don't want to tolerate evil. We want to reject false teachings. We want to love. We want to do all these things. This is who we want to be. Yet, what do we see? In this, in doing that, in being that, it's still possible that the Lord can see something creep in that he has against you. It says they abandon the love that they had at first. One of the notes in one of the, the, the Bible commentaries, right, it says about this, it says leaving that first love means a great diminishing of what the church's, of the church's initial love or turning away from the love of the Lord, right? We don't know, in fact, this was, this was John seeing where their church would be and what, some seeing of some of what was going there, but they had turned away. They had a great diminishing of whatever what their first love, and that could be their first love of the Lord. It could have been the first works that came out of the first love that they had, that, that got of it, but they're turning away. They may even been in some ways doing all those things, those great things, yet the heart of the Lord was not in it. And if we remember this same church, or you may not remember, but this same church just a generation or so earlier in the book of Ephesians was commended for their love, right? That was one of the things like, ah, oh, the church in Ephesus is such a great example of love. Right? We would desire to be the church of Ephesus, but just like her, we must be on guard that we don't let our love grow cold as we endure patiently in Christ. Right? But this is also a message of hope. Right? So we've said all these things. We remind ourselves uh, of what we're called to, and that might feel heavy because I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself. It's still difficult. It's difficult to love Difficult people. It's probably diff- difficult for people to love me at times when I love grows cold, right? But what do we see also in this passage? And it's okay that it's not there in, in, Revel- in, in this. It says this is a message of hope, right? Because God didn't say in this passage, I see it and you're done. I'm done with you, which he could, right? God is perfectly righteous. He could have looked at the church in Ephesus and said, thank you for all these wonderful things, but you are wrong in this way. I'm done with you. No. He doesn't say that. He's patient. He gives them space. He gives them time to repent. Right? He shares with them in love through John what he sees and gives them space. Right? As I was sharing some of the ideas and Brett and I were going back and forth, I'll give you a little bit of of uh, Brett this morning, Pastor Brett. Right? And he said about this because we were kind of vibing back and forth. He said... We may not be able to address all of the problems of the modern church head on, but we can certainly be people of repentance and love right here where the Lord has placed us. Right? We can be people of repentance and love right here. Right? We can guard our hearts against them becoming cold, and we can be people of love right here. 
we go back to that message, it was actually interesting when, uh, you know, the way the Lord works and, and, and runs this all out. When I went back to that message from, uh, that we listened to from, from uh, Pastor Anya Wile, and he talked about the church and loving the church. Uh, and, you know, you come through all this and you're like, ah, oh, it's hard to love the church sometimes because cold-hearted Christians are, is gross. Right? But it's, he had two really great points in that message. And I'm not going to go back and teach the message, but I think they're, they're good today. Right? He said, inferiority and insecurity are the first threat to God's vision of the church. And superiority and self-sufficiency are the second threat. Right? And that was his two points. And I thought, man, those are the same place, the same thing as we think about how we apply this that we struggle with. Right? If we feel inferior, a lot of times our heart grows cold or we allow separation because when, as Christians, when actually somebody who's a non-Christian calls us out and sees something in our lives that's falling short, right? Because non-Christians are remarkably knowledgeable about Scripture when it comes to calling out Christians. And I don't say that cynically, right? I say that I think uh, it's interesting. And when we are faced with that, a lot of times that brings out our insecurities about our faith and who we are and our, inf- in our uh, makes us feel inferior and subpar. And that is a place for coldness to come in, right? Or conversely, we feel like we have the ultimate truth, which is true. We've been forgiven. We've been sent into the world and superiority comes in. We feel like, you know what, I see what you guys are doing. The Lord's told me it's wrong. It's not what he wants for you. And we don't come with a message of gentleness and love. We come with a message of superiority. And when we see people fall short, coldness. We don't have that love. Or we start to feel like we've got it all sold together. We become self-sufficient. We don't remember what the Lord has done for us. We remember how good we're doing in how we feel we're doing in calling out what the Lord has said, right? So self-sufficiency also allows coldness to come in. And something else that I'll, I'll just share, and this has been on my heart as I go through, as I've been going through some of my readings, I, I just finished through Leviticus, or I'm jumping back and forth in the plan I'm doing between Leviticus and Matthew, which is interesting. That's how the Lord put this on my heart. Um, but I think some of it is it's, it's hard for us to remember. I guess the point that I would say is, you go through Leviticus, and if you haven't, you maybe haven't, because it can be a difficult book. It's a book predominantly covering the Lord, talking about setting up the sacrificial system for the Israelites, and all these details about creating the temple, or uh, the tabernacle, or yeah, the temple, I guess, that they would make, and then all of the ways, the ritual ways that they would go through to ask for forgiveness and cleansing of sins. And it was, you would take two doves, or you take a ram, and you'll take a, a calf, and you'll do these things and you'll take the fatty part of the liver and you'll, you'll do this and you'll burn them and you'll put some blood on the side of the altar. And you're like, oh my goodness. And it is, it's burdensome, right? That's what we usually as modern Christians think about the law. It's burdensome. But this struck me, especially as we did communion and as we do it in the first Sunday of every month. This struck me. The one thing that the Israelites, if nothing else, had in their benefit is they saw very clearly the amount of that it took to forgive to take to the lord your sins and forgiveness the number of sacrifices the way that they'd have to pick out the animals and be sure that they were clear from blemish 
the way that they'd have to prepare them, the clothing, all the things that had to be done. And they had a very vivid picture of the cost of the sacrifice. If you read, it says they bring the blood and they would put blood on the side of the altar and they'd put blood on the base of the altar and they'd put these animal parts, right? And we, we have communion. We have cups with little you know, pull off lids, a little piece of styrofoam called a cracker and, and some juice. And I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking communion. I don't mean that in any way. But we don't, we're not automatically transported into the gruesome just sacrifice that is required to buy our forgiveness. I think about what that altar must have looked like and how it must have smelled for the Israelites with blood. And it's not carnage. It was, it was butchered. It was you know, prepared, but it was not clean and nice the way that we have with communion, right? So they had this very vivid idea of what sacrifice entailed. And the, I think the downside or the challenge maybe is what I'd say for us as modern Christians is the Lord came, he paid that sacrifice once and for all. And he asked us to remember him in communion. But like I said, communion is a very sanitary, it's a very clean And he calls us to do this and do it frequently in remembrance of him, and we should. But I invite you to go back and remember the sacrifice, the the debt that was paid once and for all. And why do I bring up all that? Because I think when you remember the magnitude of what we were paid, what Jesus paid for on our behalf, it's difficult to become a cold-hearted Christian, or it's more difficult. And so I'll just offer you that. And I'll close not after an hour and a half, so great. I'll close you guys with this admonishment from Paul, right? And this admonishment, admonishment doesn't mean something that should make you guilty, but I tried to think of like, what could I give you? And I could go through another, you know, 10 points of what we can do. And I'll just read you this in Romans chapter 12. If you guys could turn with me to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14, right? Paul I'll say admonishes or gives us this, and this is how I think I'd like to leave with you. And you think about how can I keep from becoming cold-hearted? He says about this walk as Christians, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Guys, there's a lot there for you. And I'm going to leave it to you and let you pour into that and go back and think about this thing that Jesus says multiple times is going to happen. That we as the church, that our hearts, we have this risk of our hearts growing cold. And go back to this and I invite you to ask yourself and to challenge yourself to do these things. Because I think if we're doing this, if we're following what is laid out here, it's very difficult to become cold-hearted. And that, with that, as uh, the Dave and them come up, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the difficult words. 
or the things that we don't want to hear, Lord, because I believe that they're there because we need to hear them and because you love us, much like parents teach and, and drive their kids to do things that are not what they want to do, but for their good, Lord, for their growth. You include these things for us, for our growth. Lord, you don't desire, you don't know that we're going to have this risk, that we have this possibility, that you know that there are parts of the church whose hearts will at some point grow cold because of the circumstances and the things that we see in this world. And instead of hiding that from us, Lord, you, you tell us. You give us a chance to process it, to think about it, to be introspective of our lives and our actions, to search our souls, to search your words, to remember, first and foremost, the sacrifice that you gave for us, the way that you loved us, the eyes that you had for us as your people. Lord, that even when we were divided from you with sin, something that you couldn't be around, Lord, that you still loved us, that you saw us in that situation and you desired to reconcile it to us, that you didn't become cold-hearted. Lord, it wouldn't have even been cold-hearted. It would have been justified because you're perfect in truth and sinless and you could have judged us on that spot, Lord, but instead you desired, you were soft-hearted and you were loving to us and you desired to bring us and reconcile us to us and you sent us the ultimate gift, the ultimate path to be reconciled to you, Lord, that you sent your son, that he would die, that he would die in a, a very painful and difficult and, and gruesome way, Lord, that we might be forever forgiven, that we wouldn't have to see and do over and over and over the sacrifices that we saw you laid out for the nation of Israel that even when they tried and they tried earnestly, Lord, that they could never do perfectly, that they could never live by perfectly, Lord, that the law, by the law, all we had was shame and guilt and by you we have victory and forgiveness. So Lord, I pray that this would be in our hearts. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just be Oh yeah, that's a message that's, ah, yeah, I know that, that's good, file it away, Lord. But that we would consider it. We would consider it as we go out, Lord, as we interact with difficult people, Lord. Because that is what we have in the world. We have difficult, we have loving, we have good. We have people in all kinds of places and we don't know their station. We don't know all the things that are going on in their lives. And you told us it doesn't matter. That don't love people when they're in a good place. Or don't be, don't be, uh forgiving to people when they are just having a hard time. Lord, you said, love. Love first. Love again. Forgive again. And love again. And most importantly, you said that we would be known. The last thing you said, Lord, it's, it's certainly deep in my mind that the last thing you said, and by this, we would know, that they would know, the world would know that we are your disciples by the love we have for one another. So Lord, I pray that we would be people of love, both to those here in this body and to those you've put in our path as we go through the week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.